Welcome to Research Lives and Cultures, the podcast that offers conversation about the research environment. In my career as a researcher, developer, coach and trainer, I've come across a great many PhD students and postdocs. Sometimes you meet researchers who stand out or maybe really engage in what you're offering. They are out there being visible, engaged and active members of the researchers' community. Well, my guest today was such a researcher. Her name is Saida Caballero-Nives, and she's now an assistant professor in the US. I always find it exciting and fascinating to get back in touch with researchers I have met earlier on in their careers. My name is Dr. Sandrine Soub, and I am your host on this podcast. I am committed to ease the past through research careers by sharing stories of researchers' lives. I hope you find value in hearing insights from my discussion with Saida. Good morning, everyone. You are now on the podcast Research Lives and Cultures with me, Sandrine Soub. I'm your host. And today I have the pleasure to have with me Dr. Saida Caballero-Nibs. Saida is Assistant Professor of Astronomy in the Department of Physics and Space Science at the Florida Institute of Technology. I met Saida many years ago when she was a postdoctoral researcher at the University of Sheffield. And I haven't seen uh, Saida in a very long time. And it's really uh, my pleasure to, to have you on, on the podcast uh, today. Thank you for having me. It's, it's great seeing you again. <laughs> So, Saida, since you left uh, the UK, can you give us an overview of what's happened in your career so far? Thank you for the nice introduction. And as you mentioned, I did my, my postdoc in the UK in Sheffield. I was there for about four years and I was fortunate enough at that time, at the end of four years, that I, I was able to find the faculty position at Florida Tech. And I have I've been there now for four years as well. And I'm an assistant professor of astronomy and astrophysics. We are a department of aerospace, physics, and space science. And so it's a really diverse department, but it's actually, we're a very small department. Currently, I am the only female faculty on the physics and space science side. We do have another female faculty on the aerospace engineering, but the programs are rather separate. So effectively, I, I, I almost as if I were the only female faculty in, in, our, in our program. A lot of why I, I was able to come to Florida, my family was here, but I was also, um, I had the two body problem that many people have. My husband is also in academia. And so he had found a job at Embry-Riddle University, which is in Daytona, Florida. And I applied for a position there and I did not get it. Um, and so once Uh, yeah, I didn't get it. I was looking to find something nearby. I also did consider perhaps leaving the field at some point. But fortunately, a, a position opening opened up here at Florida Tech. I was able to apply for it and I was able to get it. So if we sort of sidetrack a little bit, can you tell us initially why did you actually want to come and do a postdoc in the UK? Because it's uh, often we have sort of the expectation that, you know, PhD graduates from the UK go and do a postdoc in the US. And probably 20 years ago, that there was an expectation that you had to do this to be able to be successful in getting an academic position in the UK. And this certainly has changed. But it's, it's much, it's uh, rarer, I guess, to have uh, a US PhD graduate come on this side of the, of the Atlantic. Huh? Yes. So in my field, there aren't a lot of postdoc opportunities in astronomy and astrophysics. There, you basically have to go where there are. And so there happened to be one in Portugal and one in the UK when I was applying. And I got accepted to the one in the UK, which I did accept at that time. It was a point in my life where I was willing to do something very different, to move to a different place. To be honest, I've I've been moving quite a bit for a, a lot of my life. So I'm not as attached to one location as I, I would be, uh, as you would expect me to be. The U.S. is quite large 
is a quite large country, and that's where I moved to when I was rather young. But I moved around for my undergraduate. I moved around for my PhD, and so really moving again for the postdoc was something expected. And whether it was here in the U.S. or in 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 the U.K., it didn't to me at the time it didn't really make too much of a difference. The one thing I will say is that in my area, which is stellar astrophysics, Europe in general has a much stronger community in stellar astrophysics. The U.S. tends to focus more on extragalactic and um, extrasolar planets and, and things like that. And so the opportunities actually, from my perspective, make more sense that I would be going over to like U.K. or Europe for my postdoc than it would be to actually stay here in the U.S., So could you share with us some of the highlights of doing your, your postdoc in terms of how it moved you towards being in a position to then get an academic position? Because obviously, so I used to obviously work at the University of Sheffield and I do understand the, the setup, but, you know, as a postdoc, there are lots of opportunities that are available and sometimes managing, you know, all of the opportunities that are there are very challenging and knowing what opportunities to choose from, knowing what to focus on can be really, really challenging. So what do you think that you did during the, your postdoc that you felt that really made a difference in, in shifting your, yourself forward in your academic career? I think probably it's going to sound... It, it sounds strange to me because I'm not, I don't think of myself as a very social person, but I think in my ability to become more independent and, and, and meet other postdocs or meet other early career researchers, I learned quite a bit more about not being necessarily as shy as being and being more adv advocating for myself in terms of my research and, and, and pushing myself to do more than what I would probably do on my own. So really kind of building a community, both locally at Sheffield and within my larger kind of academic community was, I think, the biggest thing that helped me. And I think a lot of that encouraged me to seek a lot of the career development opportunities at Sheffield. Being back in the U.S., I find that those opportunities were actually rather unique. Um, you especially for early career researchers, you don't necessarily find that everywhere. And so kind of writing workshops or doing things to work on your presentation skills um, are really important because a lot of what we do is actually communication. So you need to either communicate verbally or you need to co communicate publishing papers or writing proposals. And so a lot of your science, even though you can be really, really good at it, if you can't communicate it effectively, it's almost as if you've, you're not doing anything, right? And so I think having a community where I felt comfortable kind of really encouraged me to develop these skills that I, I think I didn't really have the opportunity to do so before I became a postdoc. So if I remember correctly, when you were a postdoc in Sheffield, it was a period where a postdoc society was being set up in the physics department or people were trying. So is that what you're referring in terms of the sort of the local support? Yeah, actually, I was the person who started that postdoc society uh, at Sheffield. I don't know if they've been able to keep it going, but it was I was the only postdoc in our in astronomy. And, and while I did interact a lot with the graduate students and, and they were great kind of, I was at a different stage in my career. And so I was, the expectation for me was different. And so kind of being, having somebody at a similar stage helped or kind of at a, just a, a few years ahead of me helped kind of know what to move towards and be able to kind of ask questions to somebody who, who has a similar experience or, or just a, a bit more experience than I do. And it was, as somebody who also came from a different country, I didn't, I didn't know anybody there. And so your work environment, you know, your work colleagues can often just be that work colleagues. And so sometimes you do need that sort of social base. And in creating that postdoc society, I was able to meet some really great people that have become some really close friends sort of going back to this idea of the type of opportunities that you took, how did you make a choice? Because again, 
mean, you know, you were in an institution where there was a huge amount on offer to support researchers. And often, they, you know, there could be a sense of, well, I don't know which opportunity to take because there is just so much to do and making decisions on where you put your effort. For many years, you know, I used to run workshops on public engagement, outreach, and and sometimes people will say, well, you know, I, I can't focus on that because that's not my priority. And and well, for others, it's like, well, actually, this matters to me greatly because it fits within the values that I have in terms of communicating my research broadly. So all of us, we make choices of where we put our energy. And sometimes it's energy that is put, you know, well-placed or very strategic. And sometimes we just feel like doing some things and it's not necessarily strategic, but it's just a learning and an opportunity and an experience. So in your case, how did you, did you make conscious decision of the opportunities that you took or how did you go about it really? That's a good question. I think it's, it was a bit of both. I know that I one of the things I struggle with a lot is writing and finding motivation for writing. So anytime there was an opportunity to do a writing workshop or doing a writing kind of camp where, you know, we just kind of sit there and, and just write was something I actively pursued because I knew that's something that I struggled with. And I knew that's something that I, I really should be working on. But everything else, I, I was kind of more of more unconscious, I would say is, oh, I do I have the time? Sure. Does it sound interesting? Sure. So that 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 would be kind of where I would go with that. But I always like outreach. So I know that any opportunity that came up where I could do outreach, I would I would jump at it for myself. So we, we were part of Festival of the Mind and we did an artwork piece. And, and I absolutely love that. I still actually have the artwork in my office that the artists made tying with together with our research. And so that sort of opportunity I jumped on. And that's actually also what those sort of skills and, 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 and outreach kind of experience that I had was what allowed me to have a, a strong position for when I was applying for this position at Florida Tech because they were looking for an observatory director. And a lot of the efforts that goes into being part of the observatory director is outreach work because we are in Florida. Florida, while beautiful and sunny, is often quite cloudy and humid. And so it's actually not ideal for observing. And so our telescopes are mainly there to be like, hey, like inspire the future generation on what to do, you know, that they can do STEM and, and how cool it is. But in terms of science, there's not that much science that actually comes out of it. So was it so these experiences were kind of good elements of having done, you know, the outreach as a postdoc in terms of convincing your current employer uh, to recruit you? I think so. One thing I will say that that was something I, I, I also did in graduate school and I also did as an undergrad. So it's something that I, I kind of was able to maintain throughout my academic career. So I, I would say that one's probably the, the most consistent theme <laughs> throughout my career is that I've been really excited and about outreach and 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 being involved with outreach. So what have been the, the challenges for you in moving from being a postdoc in the UK to moving back to the US into an academic position? Because again, when we, you know, from one position to another and from one country to another, there are some, you know, things that are expected that are different. So what was it like, this transition for you? It was definitely a, lear a learning curve. So I... I spent most of my life in the U.S., but I spent most of my, I would say, professional life at that point not in the U.S. because I was always a student. And so coming back here as a, a professional in work life, it was pretty different. It was, And it was very different from the U.K. system as well. So there are things that are rather uh, standard in the U.K., especially when it comes to you know, ranking like the positions for postdocs, let's say, right? That's, you have like a grade level for each postdoc and accordingly you have a pay skill that's associated with that. That doesn't exist here in the US. And so I immediately had four graduate students when I came here and being in charge of them, I'm just like, I just feel like I just graduated, guys. <laughs> like, I don't know what, I don't know what to do. And so I had to, you know, learn all these management things that I, 
I had no experience in and kind of like, what am I supposed to be paying you? Like, I don't know, like, and there's no kind of rule book. So that sort of thing is like, you have to learn word of mouth, basically. So there's th- those things that are, are unexpected. There, it's been also challenging being in, as a supervisor now, right? Because I had graduate students. So now I was in a supervisor role, which I, I had a little bit of experience, but not to the same degree, right? Like the their degree is dependent on me for them for them to actually graduate. And so trying to provide the support they need because academia is not conducive to good mental health, right? It's it's challenging for a lot of people and we all have different ways to handle it and kind of being able to provide the students what they need so that they can succeed and also have a good, you know, a good mental health environment was a challenge for me because what worked for me doesn't necessarily work for them. And so that's definitely been another challenge is kind of trying to make sure I, I'm encouraging, but also kind of motivating them to push themselves before, beyond what their, comf- their comfort zone. So how do you go about, you know, becoming a decent supervisor? Because in a way, the way that you were treated yourself as a PhD student, as a postdoc, kind of influenced your perception of what is uh, appropriate or what is acceptable in the way to behave. And sometimes, you know, the way we were treated as students is something we want to go very far away from because it's, you know, maybe the practices. But actually implementing you know, maybe nurturing is not the right word, but, uh, you know, implementing practices of supervision and of management so that you have the research output that you need yourself because you may still be under probation and, and so on. So it's almost like how to balance, you know, the expectation that you're placing on the students in a context that, you know, you are really supportive of, of their progress. How, how do you, have you managed that? I would say it's still a, a learning process. <laughs> it's it's one one thing that I did was just set goals in the sense that I when I arrived at Florida Tech, I mentioned that there were four students that were basically under my supervision. And so my goal at that time was like, okay, I need to focus on getting them to graduate. And I can't I you know, we every year we get a new kind of batch of, of incoming graduate students. And until I basically told myself I can't take on anybody else that w- whose research would be direct, directly, you know, related to what I actually do until I, I'm able to successfully get these guys through the door. I mean, that's what I was able to do so far with three out of the four. One of them is still here, but he was also the, the one that was like the the more, most junior out of them. So hopefully he'll be able to finish soon. Um, and so since then, I have now a couple of grad students that are now working on on research that's related to what I actually do. And so it's kind of been sort of realizing, okay, I have to set these sort of short-term goals focus on those, make them happen. And then I can, you know, slow, try to work on my long-term goals. And it, it was, I'm not saying I necessarily did the best job of it, but that's, that was how I approached it was just like, okay, this is what I have to do right now. Let me get this done right. And then I can um, slowly work on, on my research and kind of building my, my research group. That's that's quite a, um, a brave move in the sense that, you know, it's almost kind of posing the expansion of your research group saying, okay, hang on a minute. Okay, I've got four. I'm going to do a good job with these four. I'm going to be settled and figure out how to supervise them well before I accept more people. And probably not everybody will do that because either kind of a sense of the pressure of, you know, the way you may be perceived by colleagues or the department, or also a sense that you may be hindering your your progression. So how did you, what gave you the guts, if I may say, to actually say, hang on a minute, four will do for now, and let, let, let's just wait a bit? Because I, I'm very much put myself in, in the student's shoes. So if it were me who was a student, 
that's kind of what I think I, I would need in their situation. And so that's kind of what I, what helped me make that decision. The other part was that I, I did tr- continue to work on my research, it, perhaps at a slower pace, but it did let me kind of focus and work on it at a, at a pace that was, I say, not as um, tense or as pressure driven in a sense, because I was still making progress with, with the other graduate students' research. And I saw the potential in them. They were the three that graduated. I, I, I saw that they were, they had the motivation, they had the drive, they had the skills and the knowledge necessary. And, and so I knew that my, you know, postponing my research, they would be able to succeed. Often we talk about, you know, the, the role of mentoring and mentors in, in academic career. Who have been the people who have really helped you throughout your career? And then now in the, you know, in the context of establishing yourself as a research leader and building your research group, who is also really important now? There's always people that I've been able to go back to, even if I haven't seen them for a couple of years or, or talked to them for a while, that I've been able to reach out and be like, hey, I have this question or I'm at this stage in my life. Would you, you know, take some time and, and help me talk to me or, you know, look over my applications or, or things like that. One of the people I would say was really has been throughout both my undergraduate to graduate to postdoc to now where I am has been one of my professors from undergraduate at the University of Michigan. I actually never had her as a professor in class. I met her through the outreach that we did. And she's been the one who's really at each stage of my life that I've been like, hey, can I, you know, I'm have this problem, would you be willing to, you know, lend me your ear or give me some thoughts? And so she's been really great uh, at being that for me, even if we haven't talked in a few years. And so often what we, especially women, but men also experience this quite often is this imposter syndrome is like, I, people are giving me these opportunities without me really earning them. And one thing I learned from her is that, okay, there is some luck in that you can find that position that works for you that, that they, or, you know, that postdoc or that graduate program or that faculty position, just when you were applying and they accepted you and, and took you in, but you had to work hard to place yourself in a position where you could take that opportunity, right? If you didn't prepare yourself to take that opportunity, you wouldn't be able to have that opportunity. So yes, there is some luck with it, but your hard work is what allowed you to take that opportunity and do the most of it. And so I think that's kind of been the the, the biggest thing I, I've taken for her is like, okay, yes, I feel like I don't necessarily deserve this, but if I hadn't necessarily, you know, if I hadn't had the skills, if I hadn't worked hard to achieve what I have done, then I wouldn't be here in the first place. And, and that's something that's been tough to kind of internalize, but I think it's the, the, one of the, the, the biggest things in allowing me to accept (laughs) my next, my next position or, or my next opportunity. So the question is now, who is helping you now? Because obviously, you know, for for um, for many for many postdocs, you know, getting you know that first academic position is the dream that you know not many reach. But at the same time, being successful in that space is is again you know an, another world challenge. So what what is it that now is really the you know the person you know really mentoring you or giving you opportunity to, you know, opportunities to become more visible in your research community internationally? What, what, what is it like now in, in the way that you are or not supported to be able to transition to that next stage? That's a good question. I, I would say there's not just one person. I think there's a few people, depending on kind of what I want to do, so when I arrived at Florida Tech, our department head was also an astronomer. And so he's no longer at Florida Tech. But I think for a lot of my sort of long-term career 
questions, I still turn to him for question, for for that sort of thing because I was able to build a good relationship with him. And especially now since he know he's familiar with my institution, but he's not there anymore, he can also kind of give me a sort of different view than I would otherwise. And there are some people in similar stages as me who I kind of admire their career path that I've been able to form relationships with that I also reach out and was like, hey, look, I know you did this like a few years ago. Would you be willing to, you know, list, you know, meet up with me and, and we can talk? Or I have this proposal for this program that you were able to get in. Would you have a look at it? And I think that's actually what's helped me a lot, especially with writing proposals, is getting other people who have been successful to take a look at it and kind of give me ideas on how I can improve my my work as well. So reaching out is really key. Exactly. We're not and I think that's been the 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 what I learned most during my postdoc is that you're not in this alone. You may feel like you're alone, but you're not in this alone and people are willing to to give the time and effort to you to also help you along your way. And so and that's where I was going with when I feel like I'm don't I don't consider myself a social person, but really like the the people who I've met along the way have been really critical in, in helping me achieve the goals that I, I, I've been able to to meet so far. So what do you think is, is now your, really your role or, you know, the important thing that you need to be doing as a research team leader? Because we may have an idea in our heads of how we will want to be as a team leader, as a line manager, but the reality of the social interaction can be very different from ideal. People come into research for, for lots of different reasons with lots of different motivation. And as a research team leader, you have to adapt to whoever is working with you. And, you know, other people's motivation may be very different than yours. And, you know, getting, working well with, you know, a diverse team, is incredibly challenging. So how do you kind of see your your role and what are your approaches in in, in trying to you know have a research group that that that's the best and the most supportive that it can be with very different type of people that you may be recruiting? Yes, that's a very tough question. The it's it's a f- hard line to be nurturing or encouraging with students, but also not to be too informal sometimes because there have been times where people can't have taken advantage of that. And so kind of for me, my struggle has been sort of balancing being like, I want you to be the best person you are, but also kind of not giving so much of myself that somebody takes advantage of it and I'm the one who kind of mentally is is paying paying for it. And so I yeah, I I I really have a, <laughs> don't think I have a really good answer. It's really making sure students are realistic in expectations of what the career fields in academia look like, what the prospects in terms of jobs and opportunities are. The biggest piece of advice I always give my students is always have a plan B. Always, always, always have a plan B. At every stage of my life, I always had a plan B. And I think I would have been equally happy had plan B been the one that worked out. And so that's kind of where I'm trying to encourage my students because they feel like there's just this this one one track and that's the only option and it's just like well the reality is that not all of you are going to be able to follow that track or even if you do follow that track it may not be how you thought it would be and so you kind of have to be open to different opportunities that that present themselves and that's that comes in with that that idea of that luck is if you don't prepare yourself for when that window of opportunity presents itself, then you're not going to be able to take it. And so in preparing yourself for the, what you want to do, or, you know, what you want to be is really key. And so kind of emphasizing that knowledge to my students, having them develop the skills that they need to be successful, not just in academia, but in every, any field that they want to be, that's kind of, that's my goal in my research team. I mean, I'd love, <laughs> I'm, I'm avoiding the science here, <laughs> I think, but uh, the science is great. But at the same time, if you're not happy with what you're doing, then that's not really, 
probably shouldn't be doing it. And so it's kind of finding that balance between I'm enjoying what I'm doing and and I'm following your dreams. And in, in terms of this this dimension, the diversity dimension in terms of, you know, helping people, you know, whether they are neurodiverse or, you know, racially diverse or whatever, you know, it's what do you think is your role or what are the things that are challenging? And one of the reasons I also ask this question, because I've heard and I've read in places that in some cases, some supervisor may not challenge as much, for example, a woman in terms of, you know, critical thinking and pushing that person because they feel they don't want to push them. And I'm sure that there are some proper social science terms to describe this, but it's almost like, because you're a woman, I'm not going to be as hard on you as I may be with, you know, with a, a you know a male PhD student, for example. And in a way, not necessarily giving the opportunities that, you know, some people need to become more visible, to be more challenged, to, you know, push them. Because in a way, sometimes, you know, if you don't have the inner belief that you can achieve something and people don't push you towards that, then you you don't necessarily reach your potential. So as a supervisor and as, you know, as a line manager, how do you see your role in stretching people to reach their potential in the context of the different expectations that people are placing on themselves or the different expectations that are placed on them through, you know, cultural ex- expectations? Another tough question. So it's also a multi-layered question. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I should ask simpler questions. <laughs> so one of the... so. As a woman coming through STEM, I was often the only woman in my in my classes. And I, somebody at one point in my career asked me because I'm also I'm from originally from Puerto Rico, so in the U.S. I'm an ethnic minority as well. And so, some one asked me, "Well, what do you feel kind of may perhaps kind of challenges you more in terms of being a minority, being a woman or being Puerto Rican. And you know, I'm like, well, I'm both. I can't, my identity is both. I can't separate those two because it's just, it's me, it's who I am. And so even though I am coming from the point of view of, of a minority, I also, to my students, at least I try to be honest and be like, I come with my own prejudices, my own biases, regardless of the fact that I know I've been, you know, prejudiced against and and biased against. And that is a challenge. And I, I welcome them to, you know, let me point it out to me. And I try to be kind of aware of it with, with my interaction with students. I, I, I will admit it, it is challenging. I think for me, the one that I have least experience with is probably the neurodiversity ones, because I don't necessarily, I don't see myself that way. And so I don't, I have a harder time kind of finding ways to be encouraging but also being direct enough with with the students to for them to understand what they, they need to do that because maybe perhaps the same social clu- clues for one student do not does not work for another student. And so that's been challenging and and that's where kind of trying to be honest with with my group and and trying to be encouraging to them being like hey I'm not this big scary professor that you can't talk to though even though I say it multiple times <laughs> students don't necessarily believe it <laughs> so it, it is a challenge and I think what I want to do is for them to see themselves in this field and realize that they can do it if they really really want to that's my biggest goal is that to see yourself in this role and to pursue it and if you do leave the field it's because you chose to leave the field not because some someone chose it for you it's almost like it's the idea of building an identity before you're even in a position to actually have the role. Exactly. What do you think that you have done well in terms of enhancing your vis- your external visibility? You know, putting your research out there, getting you know, out there, getting people to know what you do. 
And because again, that's something that for a lot of women, you know, you may, you know, do amazing research, but you don't necessarily take the time to be super visible, you know, in people really knowing what you do and the expertise that you have and just doing hard work, you know, publishing well, but not, you know, being, yeah, being visible. So what, what have you tried to do to, to enhance that? I will say that's probably the the least effort I put into. <laughs> I've there are things I've thought about doing, but I've never haven't actually done. So in astronomy, we have a Facebook group that people can post recent publications, and I do that for my students. I don't necessarily do that for my own work, but I will do that for my students' work. I mostly using social media has been kind of helpful in that. We also have archive, which is open access database where where you can put publications. And so I do always, any publications that I do have to a journal, I always post there as well. The other thing for external visibility, I was able to do more so in the UK than I I have been here in the US, just because at UK, it's a little bit easier to travel, or it was back in the day, was giving colloquiums and seminars at different departments. That was pretty key in kind of increasing my visibility among the community and also introducing myself to people whose research I find interesting when I go to a, a conference. And asking them questions and not being as shy. I think those are where my efforts have gone. I don't, I wouldn't say I necessarily have done a very good job of it, but yeah. Working progress. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) So what, what, what is the most important thing for you in the work that you currently do? Because I guess you have a portfolio of teaching and research and lots of other admin roles as well. But in your view, what's you know, at the core of what you enjoy doing or the values that you have, what do you think is the, the, the part that's really the most important to you? I think the next generation um, motivated and seeing how they grow and learn to become their, their next, their best self in the area. I've... So, yeah, so my job is a mix of teaching, research, and what the university calls service, which includes outreach and and things like that. And so really, I I don't get to do this often, but because we are a smaller university, I do get to know our students a lot more, both at the graduate and undergraduate level. And, and sort of seeing them progress from not, you know, learning the basics of physics and math to, you know, being able to present this, re, you know, publication-worthy research at the end of, of their their time here is, is really, I think, the, the most exciting part of my job. There was a recent report in the UK with a survey done by the Wellcome Trust and reading this report, you know, it's sometimes it feels quite sad. There are lots and lots of challenges. And I'm sure that, you know, there are probably similar reports in the US. If you, you know, wh- what do you think, you know, if there is something that you would want to change in the research environment, that's really something that you can contribute towards changing? Because there are lots, you know, changing the grant the funding system, you know, is one thing, but often, you know, at 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 own level, it may be hard to change anything. But if there is something that you feel that's really is important to me, and I'm going to do something about it, in terms of you know reflecting on the experience that you had as a PhD student and a postdoc, and now you know establishing yourself as an academic, and you know at at some point you will progress in your you know in your seniority and your leadership within the institution. What do you think? is the space where you feel, okay, this is the area where I want to contribute. Or maybe you don't, I don't know. I'm, I'm asking it in a like, <laughs> as an expectation, but I sh- really shouldn't. But if there was something that you wanted to change in the research environment, where would you want to contribute? In the mental health balance expectation, the life work balance expectation, both for men and women, we all, and this is what I tell my students, we all have our challenges. Our challenges vary and are different. And it's really learning to kind of handle these challenges. And sometimes you need different sets of tools to be able to handle these challenges. And and being, and it's not obvious how you, that you can't, there are tools to handle these challenges or there are ways to do, to, to help 
with the work-life balance because we've had graduate students who, you know, because they, they're female and they, they were pregnant, they, we don't have parental leave for them. And the same thing if it's the the partner that who's who who's the one that's pregnant, it's a challenge for them to to take any sort of parental leave. Or if somebody has a challenge like a, a neural you know diversity challenge, again, I I had a student like that, and I try to go through our university to be like, hey, I don't, I'm not familiar with this, I don't what what are some recommendations what are some resources that i can do and the university was just like well you can look online and so i that's been really tough cuz i know these students need a different type of support and i just i don't know how to give it to them and, and kind of educating myself and and having our my colleagues also being willing to kind of keep an open mind i find really challenging i was told once by a colleague that grad students should be should the expectation is that they should always be working 80 hours a week if they leave at at, at five even if they got in at like 7 a.m that's not okay and then and I don't I, I don't I completely disagree with that I think students even at, at their at their stage or especially at their stage should be encouraged to kind of okay you put in your time take a break because you're usually more if effective once you come back How have you managed your own resilience in research? Husband has been a very supportive person. <laughs> He's been my sounding board often and it's I'm not going to lie it's it's very challenging. It's been very challenging especially now with COVID for both personal reasons and for academic reasons. It's been really tough and I'd say I'm working on it. <laughs> And being being in being a woman in in physics, how are you in a way? How different do you think it is in terms of your career than if you if you were a man? What are you know the experiences that you've had yourself of you know being biased against? Of do you in a way we we can't necessarily know when we have been biased, but the experience that you've had so far, how do you feel that you've maybe navigated your career differently or? been not been given opportunities because you were a woman how has this affected you and how have you navigated that space usually by finding other women who who I can share have shared experiences with I'm usually the only one is it's definitely having to go to other areas or other fields we here at Florida Tech the We, we actually had a lunch when we were still meeting um, face-to-face about once a month for some of the women in, in, at Florida Tech. And, and, and that was really nice to get to know them and to get to know people outside my department. I will say there have been implications and I certainly felt that a lot of people saw me being accepted for a position, not necessarily here, but just in, 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 my, in my experience, in my past of being there because I was a woman and because, you know, they needed a token minority. And, and it's, it's one of those experiences is like, well, I'm, I know I'm qualified to be here. I wouldn't be here if I weren't qualified. Yes, perhaps I was looked at more closely because I was a minority, but I wasn't given this opportunity if I wasn't qualified. And that's something that's hard to kind of accept. Yeah, I think, again, having a network to help you get through it. Also, for me, I'm willing to say, you know, if this doesn't work out, I'm happy to do something else. I think that's kind of the biggest really, really for me is like, I'm happy to do something else if, if it gets to be too much. What kind of research leader do you want to become? In an ideal world, you know, it's like, you know, your, your dream, you know, in a way environment to be, you know, your best self as a research leader. I would like a, <laughs> have a research group in which the students are coming to me with their own ideas and their own inspirations. And with me just being kind of more of a role of, of oh, did you think about this? Or, hey, that sounds, that sounds similar to this other idea. Maybe you can try this. And so kind of allowing the students to have this environment where they can bring up questions and, and, and have their own creativity scientifically and to 
also let them feel seen. I think that's the biggest thing is is to let them know that they're 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 a person and they're a person of value and and that you know they're contributing to the field. Why do you think it doesn't always happen in terms of people bringing their own ideas and not being scared of sharing their ideas? Because it's it's something that that comes up where sometimes academics feel that there is a, a, a resistance or there is a, you know I don't know people limit themselves in sharing their ideas. So I think a lot of it is how we're educated. I think education is often passive where this, you know, the, the teacher, the professors in the front of the classroom and the students kind of absorbing the material. And, and in that sort of scenario, students don't necessarily see how they can ask questions or they feel that they, if they do, they'll be interrupting. And that's often kind of, again, we are, that's how we were taught as well. So when we're teaching to our students, that's kind of, we're just kind of doing that same, repeating that same model. And it may not necessarily be the, the, the best model to encourage people who aren't typically academically top in their class, right? And so just because at one point you're not necessarily the best student, that doesn't mean you're, you can't do this, but you don't necessarily know how else you can see yourself in this field if you're not, if you're not, do, you're not getting the grades in, in the classes. And I would say, I think it has to do with it, how we're at our education system and, and giving the students the opportunity to ask uh, questions and, and to know that we're not scary people. One of the hardest things to remember for me is when trying to do something is the worst that somebody can tell me is no, right? And so you're back to where you were before. And so you might as well try. If you have the time and you have the energy, you might as well try. Because you're just, you know, you, you if you don't try, there'll definitely be a no. But if you do try, you know, the worst they'll tell you is no. Like, they're not going to go after you and be like, oh, you're the worst. Like, never again. You know, it's just, no, not this time. And so you try it, try again next. And so kind of having that, that, I think a lot of people, I know for me, that's, that's been the challenge is, is the worst that they can tell me is no, that's the scariest thing. And that's okay. Like, it's not actually that scary. And I, we just build it up to be a lot scarier than it is. And so, yeah, I, I'd say it's having a way to allow students to be a bit more active in their education. But for that, it's, it's a big, big challenge, I think. I mean, it's interesting because in a way with the remote learning and so on, maybe there will be a shift in, you know, often people talk about, you know, the blended learning approach and learning technologies have been going on for a long time about it. So that material and, you know, lessons, you know, are done kind of ahead of the interaction with the lecture where, the, the, the you know, the face-to-face interaction is actually a much more interactive and dynamic interaction instead of just delivery. So in, in some ways, maybe the COVID will have a positive impact on in that aspect of completely reshaping the, you know, the the way we're thinking about teaching. I don't know. I think I think that's a, a that's a big possibility that going forward the teaching is going to be different due to the last year or so. So to sort of ra- round off our discussion, some of the, the last few questions I'd like to ask you, uh, Saida, is about if you were going to do it all over again, what would you do differently? You know, would you do you know the things that you may feel, well, that was a mistake or I did this didn't work out? Would you still do the same? I think recognizing that mental health is a problem earlier, I think would probably be what I would hope to try to do differently. Because I, there definitely were times in undergrad and graduate school, it's kind of, it shows up throughout that there were times where I knew I needed help and I didn't necessarily recognize it. And so I think that would have been, that would probably be the biggest thing that I would do differently. However, I think, I think for the most part, I'm pretty happy with kind of the F, the work that I've done and, and the efforts I put in. And if if you had a word of wisdom to for your young self, what would be that word of wisdom? <laughs> um, believe in yourself. <laughs> I think that okay. that would be the word. But I knowing myself, it, I would it would be hard for me to internalize that. 
And to sort of round things off, what would be your your best tips for a female, you know, physics students who wants to, you know, tackle the world of research and, you know, have a go at this this career? There's an expression, um, it's fake it till you make it. And a lot of people, you know, th there is some truth to that. And in, in the example I was given was that, you know, somebody was was given a fellowship. And so their advisor told them, when they went to their advisor and they were like, I don't think I deserve this. I don't think I, I really earned this. I don't, I'm not that type of, of, of caliber of scientist. And so they were told, well, you know, what, what, what do you think makes that caliber of scientists? What, what do you think? Like, well, there's somebody who like at uh, conferences will all be in the front row. will always ask a question. We'll always try to, you know, talk to, 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 to the person who's giving the talk. We'll, you know, we'll always be seeking out more information. And so there's like, well, why don't, why don't you try doing that? And they did. And eventually they, they found themselves and looking back on their career that they 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 were that person they were able to kind of achieve professionally the goals of somebody who of you know a fellowship level type of 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 scientist and so it's one of those things it's like well even if you you don't think you earn it or you don't think you deserve it you know try to see if you can exemplify the skills or the the attitude that you admire in people who do have the who you feel do meet those requirements and in doing so you may find that you yourself are what you didn't think you were well it's been really a pleasure Saida to um, to meet you again after quite a few years since uh, you've left uh, the UK I really wish I could visit you in Florida. <laughs> I wish you could come too. It's 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 great to see you again, and, and thank you for having me. And I hope this serves as sort of useful for those who are going to listen to this talk. I hope you've enjoyed the discussion I had with my guest. I'm very grateful to you for listening to our discussion. I hope that you will join me in future podcasts. If you have a good story to tell about your life in research and the research environment, please get in touch. I'm always interested in meeting new contributors for the podcast. You can find my detail in the show notes. I really look forward to having you contact me and hear about your stories of life in research. <laughs>